When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it's James Crepia bringing you another edition of Ducks Confidential here at the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Certainly a lot to go over in Oregon sports news this past week and setting up for the week ahead. Starting, of course, with the WNBA draft and the expected domination by the Ducks throughout the first round, and it basically held the form in exactly what was expected. Sabrina Ionescu going number one overall to the New York Liberty, Satu Sabali going second overall to the Dallas Wings, and Ruthie Heber going eighth to the Chicago Sky. The only major draft night drama, as far as Oregon was concerned, was where Ruthie was going to end up. And as things shifted into pick six and seven and eight, with each passing selection, the probability that Ruthie had a chance to reunite with Sabrina increased. And it was a question as it unfurled live Friday night, was was Minnesota going to pick Ruthie? They did not. When it got to Chicago, which obviously is where she ended up, it was basically at that point a 50-50 proposition. Was Chicago going to make the move and team her with Courtney Vandersloot? Or were they going to go in a different direction? And then at which point it was undeniable New York was going to make the pick. There is no way around it. Of course, we know now that Ruthie is headed to Chicago, uh, her birthplace, and she will team up with another Kelly Graves point guard and Courtney Vandersloot. And Graves will be the first to tell you that Vandersloot is the best point guard in the world. And he's got a pretty good argument in that regard. Uh, So as good as Sabrina is, she's now a rookie in the WNBA. And while Oregon fans may expect her to be able to uh, transcend and bring the liberty to being a really good team very quickly, time will tell because there's a reason why they had the number one pick. They are a franchise who is going through a massive, massive rebuilding, not only around Sabrina, but a new coaching staff as well. And they have, in this case, four first-round picks or four very early picks from Friday night's draft. That's core. That's a nucleus. That's something to build around. But they traded a many-time All-Star in Tina Charles in order to acquire some of the picks that they ended up getting for Friday night. The face of their franchise is no longer there. Now, they are making that shift, and that's okay. But the idea that Sabrina is going to be on a Uh, going from a last-place team or near the bottom to now being a championship contender overnight, that's, you know, it's going to be more than just her required. But that's, you know, that'll be her next challenge. She, She may and probably will lose more in her first season with the Liberty than she did probably in her entire Oregon career, certainly in the last three years. And that's that's part of it. That's part of being a top pick and going to a team who needs to go through a huge rebuild. That's going to be part of the challenge. 
is for a player, especially as good as Sabrina, who I know a lot of elite players can say they really hate losing. No, she really, really hates losing. How do you adjust to that? How do you adjust to being at the level of success and accolades and attention and all in a positive light throughout your college career to being the focus of attention and accolades, yes, good or bad at the next level, because it's not a foregone conclusion that she's going to go out and put up the kind, uh, certainly not with the volume of numbers that she did at the college level. I mean, you got to be fair. You got to be fair. You could have high expectations, but the idea that she's going to walk right into a professional league and what, lead the league in assists and average 18 plus points and, uh, you know, eight plus rebounds. I mean, come on now. You know, this is, it's a different caliber of competition. That, and that's not a knock on Sabrina. That is a contextualizing of the caliber of play and respecting the caliber of play she's going to be walking into on a team that, again, is going through a massive rebuild. But how she adjusted that will be one of the main stories. In this season, whenever the WNBA season picks up, she will certainly be the focus of attention. And look to find out exactly how many jerseys were pre-ordered Friday night into Saturday and throughout the weekend for Sabrina because she is clearly going to be the face of a franchise that has been lost in the shuffle for the better part of the decade. The New York Liberty have played at numerous different locations around the tri-state area over the last decade due to a number of reasons, due to changes in ownership, due to the renovation at Madison Square Garden, due to any number of things. But now they have a permanent home going forward at the Barclays Center in downtown Brooklyn and a new owner who is far more competent And yes, a new coach with the Liberty as well, and new players all around her. So whenever the season does start, whenever that might be, and we don't know right now, but whenever that does begin, her mission and her objective as the new face of that franchise is going to involve so, so many things. But in conjunction with the news of her being the first pick on Friday night, you also had news throughout the course of the day on her front in regard to endorsements and outside of on-the-court contracts and basketball and the like, uh, picking up an endorsement deal with Beats by Dre, picking up an endorsement deal with Nike. And we'll wait to see the exact details and what a shoe line looks like for Sabrina in that regard. But this is clearly the next phase of a player who has very much transcended the game, transcended the level in which she was playing. And as the Liberty GM said on Friday night on a conference call, after the draft, said this is somebody who the, the, the her work product is is there because of her work ethic. She built it. She built it all. Nothing was inherited. Nothing was given. Everything was earned. And that is quintessential New York. And that is obviously very reflective of where, how she's gotten to where she is. So for Sabrina, that is where she heads and the mission that will be in front of her. For Satu... It's not much of an easier uh, situation either. Also, another player who is going to a team, going through a massive, massive roster reshaping and rebuild. And the reason why there being that they traded Skylar Diggins-Smith in the offseason. So the Dallas Wings go from having a terrific player uh, and obviously not being able to come to amical terms on a contract, making a trade, acquiring numerous first-round picks, and made no bones about it heading into the draft that this was going to be a draft of enormous consequence to that franchise. If you're going to be drafting that many players that early throughout the first and second round, you have the opportunity to create the core 
of players that you want to build your team around and be the face of your franchise and hope to lead you to championships and into certainly in playoff contention and championship contention for many years to come. Whereas if you miss uh, with that many opportunities, then you could set yourself back that much further. So the Dallas Wings very much going for, and then their CEO coming out and saying Friday night that in any other year in any other draft, Satu would have been the number one pick, and they're right. And that's not, again, that's not a, a criticism of anybody. That is the reality that it's <laughs> you, you come out in a draft with, and the same could be said basically of Lauren Cox. Let's look at it that way. If you don't go out in a draft with Sabrina and Satu, Lauren Cox is the number one pick. Heck, go back a year ago. And while when the immediate announcement and the immediate aftermath of Sabrina announcing she was going to return, the expectation she would have been the number one pick a year ago, and she would have been. She would have been. And that's not a knock on Asia Durr, but she would have been. Who is now our teammate, by the way. But she would have been. But the question going back a year ago in the immediate aftermath wasn't, will Sabrina be number one? The overwhelming odds were she would be. The question was whether or not the team who got the number one pick was going to be in need of a point guard. Or was Lauren Cox going to be the number one pick because that team might not need a point guard and great as Sabrina is, you, you got to draft to the position of need. For instance, had Chicago somehow, some way, had the season come out a certain way or a draft lottery played out a certain way, if you already have somebody like Courtney Vandersloot on your roster, you're not going to go out and draft Sabrina Ionescu. And that's, you know, you could either trade the pick or whatever, but bottom line, you weren't going to go out and do that. Obviously, once the Liberty won the lottery in the fall, well, then it became a foregone conclusion Sabrina was going to be headed there. Dallas made its moves in the early part of the winter. It became very clear that once Satu declared in February that she was probably going to be the likely either number two or three. It was going to be based on who ended up with those picks. And though she admitted, and credit to her for admitting it, that due to the coronavirus and the pandemic and all the uncertainty and is there going to be a season, is there not going to be a season, how do you deal with this? How do you cope with this? And is it better to return for a senior season and give it another go and see how the world kind of looks a year from now? Or to go now and say, this is this is the time. Uh, better, better to be a professional going through it uh, than to stick in college and do it again. She stuck with it. And Dallas had said that because she was an underclassman, uh, by WNBA draft rules, they could not be in touch with her prior to the formal uh, declaration deadline. So by the time the Dallas Wings had a chance to talk to Satu Sabali, it was after the draft declaration deadline earlier this month on April 7th, at which point she was obviously committed, uh, and it made it abundantly clear to them that she was committed. So nobody has any uh, trepidation or concern about the fact that she and, like all of us, have a degree of concern about the short-term future, the short-term horizons and uncertainty into whatever your line of work may be. Well, no different for them. And these are just young women beginning a professional career in basketball. But if you're beginning your career, at, if you're a college student be looking to begin your career, and to whatever the line of work, you know, whatever your choosing trade may be, there's a lot of uncertainty right now. So, But nobody has a bigger uh, concern or uh, questions or doubts about Satu's ability. Or her commitment, obviously, to playing the game. And she said it to Dallas, where, again, they're going through a massive rebuild. And Ruthie Hebert, while the Chicago Sky don't have the same level of rebuild, certainly compared to the Liberty or the Wings, uh, they've got you know, they've got some things to, to work around. They've got some things to sort out. Uh, 
you know, no, they're not. Uh, they're certainly not going through the scale of rebuild of of either the Liberty or the Wings, though. And teaming up with not only a phenomenal point guard, but a phenomenal point guard who runs in the pick and roll and runs from the same collegiate system uh, that Kelly Gray has ran. And look, now she's in the pros, so I don't want to say that you know everything's going to be seamless and. Uh, Courtney Vandersloot and everything that they're running at the sky is, is exactly what Oregon was running or what Gonzaga was running under Graves at that time. That, to be clear, I mean, she, she's a pro now and, and the pro game is a bit different. But the vision and the thought process of Courtney Vandersloot and Sabrina Ionescu is very, very similar because when you run a pick and roll system, really doesn't matter whether it's college basketball or pro basketball, the men's game or the women's game, the pick and roll game. Ultimately, what you're looking for is a lot of the same keys. And if you're on the same page, well, that helps, helps in a big way. So a, a forward who benefited enormously from a point guard who could run the pick and roll and create a duo that was incredible at the college level now goes to play with another incredible point guard at the pro level. So once the WNBA season picks up, when those teams play each other, that could be truly fantastic television. It'd be great uh, for Oregon fans to watch from afar, but certainly to see Sabrina during her course of her rookie season will be of note. But when she plays Dallas, when she plays uh, Chicago in particular, yeah, that's going to generate a lot of attention. Even Atlanta with Maite Kazorla. And that's one where... The dream select Michaela Pivik early in the third round. And we'll see how who ends up making a roster and et cetera. But at one point or another, they're at least going to be competing for time, reps, uh, or potentially even, you know, depending how that roster sorts out, you could have a former Duck and a former Beaver in the same backcourt. So, again, a lot of intrigue in the WNBA season, uh, certainly with a lot of Ducks headed there. And we'll look to see when, whenever the league makes its determination as to when it's going to pick up when it's going to begin its season. Everything is suspended at the moment. Having said that, uh, they were supposed to have an Olympic break. Obviously, their entire calendar and entire schedule, like the rest of the sports world, is in flux. But their schedule was built originally with a long Olympic break in the middle of it. So they can suspend their season with a little bit more degree of leeway compared to some of the other leagues. Because, well, obviously they haven't started yet. And two, part of their calendar originally was built with the idea of fitting a number of games before the break and then a number of games after the break. Now they can feasibly, possibly, kind of sandwich those together and work it that way. Now, long way to go. Long way to go. The WNBA is just the one of many, many leagues in trying to determine how it will resume play during the course of this season, but whenever they do, whenever it happens, certainly Oregon fans have a lot to look forward to. Shifting gears to Oregon football, had the uh, Friday was a jam-packed day uh, in the Oregon sports news front. On the football front, the Ducks have their new wide receivers coach, and that is former South Carolina offensive coordinator Brian McClendon, who was hired on Friday. He had spent the last four years with South Carolina, the last two of which were as the play caller and offensive coordinator. And the prior two years, he was the co-coordinator without play calling duties and receivers coach. But McClendon's background 
is primarily, primarily he's known as a really good recruiter, really good recruiter, terrific recruiter, did tremendous job while at Georgia, his alma mater, uh, had brought in some of their great running backs. He coached running backs as well as receivers during the course of his tenure at Georgia, which spanned nine years. And he brought in some great players there. And at South Carolina, he inherited Debo Samuel, but he helped to develop him into a second-round pick. And Samuel certainly had the natural speed and ability, but you know he still had to work with the young man to make sure he reaches potential in a big way. McClendon had a role in that. He also went out and recruited several, several four-star receivers to South Carolina. And some of them are still there, and some of them are doing quite well. And we'll see how the rest of their careers go. But point is, is what, is he, what did he do at, Cal- at South Carolina? He went out, he inherited one guy, and made sure that he did. Debo Samuel was as explosive and dynamic a receiver, really, as there was in the country. He may not have been the most polished. He may not have had every even check every single box. But as far I mean, he he was a phenomenal specialist and return man. He was a game breaker, and that's why South Carolina's success kind of ebbed and flowed uh, throughout the course of Debo Samuel's career with his health and ability to stay healthy and on the field. When he missed time, they struggled in a big way because you have a guy who's one of the fastest players in the sport. Yeah, it's pretty important uh, to be able to stretch the field uh, with a guy like that. And the other wideouts, like I say, who McClendon helped bring to. Uh, South Carolina yeah some of them have already paid dividends and we'll see how the rest of their careers go but ultimately if you're a Ducks fan and you were in any way critical of the offense particularly the past two seasons and you didn't like Marcus Arroyo you didn't like his play calling you thought it was too bland you thought it was too conservative you thought it whatever the case may be we're not going to revisit every one of these topics for the umpteenth time but if you didn't like any facet of the offense before, whether it was the quarterback mobility and quarterback run or uh, the run pass distribution, even though, again, numbers and success, don't let data get in the way of your narrative, I know. But be that as it may, if you didn't like it for whatever your reason, uh, objectively, you still have to be, and even if you did like it for that matter, even if you were able to look at the numbers and put aside any other notions about, well, I really want a quarterback to run, but they're not doing it, and that's okay because they're still putting up huge numbers and winning football games, which is their primary responsibility. But whichever side of the fence you fall in in that argument, those arguments are old and over with. What you have to look at now is say, what was before and what is now? And the Oregon Ducks football staff on offense went from having Marcus Arroyo, the quarterback's coach and offensive coordinator and play caller, and Javon Bonite at wide receivers coach for a year. And before that, Michael Johnson, obviously. But that was your two, two of your major pieces on your offensive staff. Obviously, the rest of the staff has been consistent, but in those two positions that have changed. And now you have Joe Moorhead as quarterbacks coach, offensive coordinator, play caller. And Brian McClendon as receivers coach and pass game coordinator on that side. There is no objective measure. There is no statistic. There is no way of saying in any other way that as much as even, like I say, even if you're just very objective when it comes to Marcus Arroyo and what he helped deliver at Oregon, 
and Oregon statistics during his time. There is no way to say that Oregon is not in a better place today with its offensive coaching staff than it was on January 1st or at any point in the last season. There isn't. And that's not a criticism or a knock of either of the men who left. But in like in anything, like, like Mario Cristobal had talked about and says anytime there's an opening on a staff, anytime a player chooses to transfer and leave, anytime there's a change in personnel, you hope as an organization, your goal is to go out and replace them with someone better. And that's not a knock on that person, that player, that coach, that executive, that athletic director, that whoever the case may be. You want to upgrade all the time. That is your objective. That is your goal. Some people are able to do it. Some people aren't. Sometimes it's easier to do than other times. But that is the goal. Well, like I say, go back to any point in the last year, but even the Rose Bowl. And now look at the offensive coaching staff and tell me that Oregon didn't upgrade at those positions. Now, that doesn't, that's on paper. That is not predictive of future outcomes. That is not guaranteeing success in the 2020 season, whenever it might be played, or any time thereafter. That is just, this is more of a on paper and resume assessment and track record assessment than it is anything else. But you got to, I mean, you got to be objective with it. They absolutely upgraded. Even, like I say, even if you look at Marcus Arroyo objectively and say, hey, he still delivered a lot of positive statistics and a lot of really fine outcomes for Oregon's offense, his resume compared to Joe Moorhead's resume as an offensive coordinator, play caller, heck, even as a head coach, because Moorhead's time at Fordham was terrific and did things there that hadn't been done in forever. And even his time at Mississippi State, while it was not as good as he wanted it to be or they wanted it to be, some of the things that he got blamed for were a bit out of his control, to say the least. But having said that, his resume and track record is longer and more proven and, frankly, more successful than Marcus Royals was. But that part of that is a product of age and just the course of that resume and timing. That's a big part of it. And look. We'll be able to judge their full careers by the time, you know, that, that's for 20, 30 years from now you worry about something like that. But as of today, yeah, Moorhead's a more accomplished play caller, offensive coordinator, and coach than Marcus Royal was and is today. Could that change, like I say, in five years, 10 years, whatever? Yeah. But you're worried about, as an Oregon fan today, you're worried about the here and the now. Well, Joe Moorhead is an upgrade there. Then at the receiver coach position, you bring in a former coordinator who already had two years as a play caller at South Carolina. And in 2018, he did well. Did pretty good. It's amazing what happens when you no longer have a really dynamic receiver or you have myriad injuries at the quarterback position. A funny thing happens with play callers and quarterbacks coaches or offensive coordinators or, for that matter, defensive coordinators, when all of a sudden one of the linchpins to your success is not there or is hurt. Or whatever, you know, you're going through a massive rebuild or whatever the case is. Funny things tend to happen. And in the case of McClendon, his first year as play caller and coordinator, they had success. Then this past season, South Carolina had a lot of injuries at the quarterback position. They were down to a converted wide receiver 
at one point to run the offense. It was a mess. Is that Brian McClendon's fault that the quarterback position (laughs) suffered multiple injuries? Well, no. Is it his fault that Debo Samuel, you know, completed his eligibility and was off to the NFL and that was just the timing of it? No. And again, he brought in some receivers who delivered some results for that matter. So he was doing what he could. But Will Muschamp had an opportunity to make a change at offensive coordinator. And by the way, you're not bringing McClendon in to be the coordinator. You're bringing him to be the receivers coach and a major, major part of your recruiting mission for this year in particular. Because make no mistake about it, on the recruiting front, the number one position of priority for Oregon this offseason has got to be the receiver position. There is no way around that. That has got to be, like, go back a year ago, it was obviously the offensive line. They needed five, they got five. That was known. There were no mistakes about it. They had to go out and get five guys. Well, they have to go out and get multiple wide receivers in this class. They must. And right now, after between what they lost last year and missed out on and everything else along the way, and just the way the position group is coming together, they have to add multiple receivers this offseason. So whoever the coach and whoever the hire was going to be was going to be really, really significant what they did on the recruiting front. Well, bringing in a Brian McClendon, who has, throughout the course of his career in recruiting, landed some terrific players. Not only, again, some of the receivers that he's brought to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. When he was at Georgia... His alma mater and coaching for Mark Richt. And look at some of the running backs who he brought in there. Some of the, and look, Georgia, you know, Georgia's had plenty of running backs over the years. You don't want to chalk it up to any one person because at one point or another, you just say it's, it's almost etched in stone that certain places are going to have certain positions. It's, it's hard not to. Well, be that as it may, the man in charge at the time who gets the credit at that chosen position, was Brian McClendon. He helped bring in some terrific players. Terrific players at the running back position in particular. And a couple at the receiver spot too. And by the way, he's been at South Carolina the last four years. And there's more reasons than the fact that he wasn't at Georgia anymore, by the way. But that aside, Georgia makes a change to its coaching staff. He goes over to South Carolina. And what's happened to Georgia's wide receivers in the year since? Here we are a full four years later, and the number one position of concern last season for Georgia was the wide receiver position. you got to say, the man had a pretty strong impact on the places he's been while he's been there. And all right, yeah, he had his play-calling duties stripped of him, but you're not hiring him to be the play-caller. And part of the reason why he had that happen was not entirely due to him. Just like we're talking about how Oregon had to go about making upgrades, South Carolina had to make upgrades. So if you don't know and you don't follow every single day and you're worried about, well, wait a minute, we're getting a guy who's coming off having his, you know, basically being demoted. You know, I I don't know how good that should be, could be, should be, would be. Well, you're not hiring him for the same job, first off. That's that's first. Second, uh, if you really want to even get into the reasons why, a lot of them were out of his control. And lastly... Whether they were in his control or not, as soon as Mike Bobo became available this offseason, there were few things more 
chiseled in tablet and in stone than Mike Bobo going to be at South Carolina with Will Muschamp. They have basically a lifelong connection. Anytime Muschamp has an offensive coordinator opening or the possibility of making a change, and Bobo is somebody who can be under consideration, that was like a foregone conclusion. So bottom line, Oregon staff went out and made changes this offseason. Both of them proved to be positive. So there you have it. Now, to the... I would be remiss if I omitted this entirely because some will be critical of uh, a decision to make a hire amid the pandemic, amid the hiring freeze at the U of O, and the rest. And uh, again, I don't speak for anybody here, but just to clarify, yes, there is a hiring freeze. Yes, the athletic department requested a exception to that hiring freeze and was granted the exception to the hiring freeze to fill the wide receiver coach position. That's according to a UL spokesman. Now, secondly, even if you're somebody if you're somebody who doesn't necessarily follow sports on the day to day and you just look at the numbers and you don't like the coaches make a lot of money, well, all right. Listen, I know there are a lot of people out there feeling feeling the pinch right now in a big way. Big way financially. Some who have completely lost any, any, any ability to generate revenue and income right now. But to take it out on somebody whose contract you haven't even seen the full terms of yet one let's take a look at the contract first before you get outraged and two they're gonna have a receivers coach i mean that's not what the position is going to be unfilled indefinitely and forever they're going to have to have an assistant coach on the staff who coaches the wide receivers and it's i mean come on now so and the position was open before everything got shut down and before the hiring freeze went into play now, that applies to the 200-some-odd other positions at the U of O that are open as well that have nothing to do with athletics. But the other side of it is athletics is a self-sustaining budget. So in filling the position and getting the exception of the hiring freeze, the mandate from UL President Michael Schill to Rob Mullins to have a balanced budget is no different whether or not they had a receivers coach or not. That mandated edict held true before and holds true now. So ultimately, again, if you want to get upset because amid a hiring freeze, Oregon football made a hire, well, one, a little bit of perspective, but two, worry about it when you see the final budgets. Their their budget in athletics is not impacting whether or not the university makes decisions on its budget. These budgets are wildly different situations, entirely different. So like I say, I would have been remiss if I completely dropped that out. And lastly for this week, I just wanted to mention, obviously, another bit of news that came out on Friday, um, but certainly shifts and uh, changes the Oregon men's basketball roster, and that being Francis Okoro entering the transfer portal on Friday. Uh, Not a stunning news development, exactly, uh, given just the kind of season that Francis had, and he went from being a starter to having to come off the bench and... Uh, certainly the emergence of Chandler Lawson and the further development of Infali Dante as the season went on. And we'll see. We'll see if Dante ends up uh, returning. Everybody right now is in a state of flux, uh, both in college basketball and in the NBA and in every other sports world. So we'll wait to see uh, how rosters formulate. But because of his role changing, because of, and let's face it, he was having a pretty you know solid start in non-conference play, uh, despite the fact that it got hit by a car uh, as a pedestrian 
and fortunately it was okay uh, early in the uh, off well early in the uh, not conference season and was all right. But the unexpected death of his father obviously weighed very heavily on Francis Okoro. Extremely so, as it would anybody in that position. So it wasn't just the obvious and stating the obvious that the death of a loved one, death of a parent would impact you. You saw it impact him. He basically admitted as much. And any time in the one or two questions that would come up as to trying to ask him exactly how much and how difficult it was, he respectfully declined to get into it because he didn't want to address it because that's how much it was impacting him. And that's fine. So, yeah, did his numbers drop in Pac-12 play and was he inconsistent at times? Yes. Was it completely understandable? Yeah. It wasn't as though the young man went out and decided to, you know, regress massively, you know, in basketball. His skills didn't suddenly deteriorate. He was mentally in a very, very difficult place. Hey, that's that's part of it too. You gotta, I mean, you gotta be fair. He would not be the first or the last person to struggle with that very, very difficult situation during the course of a season. But as a whole, Francis Okora was still a leader in that locker room. He still his word and his actions still carried weight because of the way that he played the game. Put aside the production for a moment. The way that he played, the intensity with which he played, and the smarts with which he played and developed over the course of his two years at Oregon, that was what they wanted to see. And that he was a basically the person and the player that was held up to other forwards as to you need to play more like him. You need to do more like what Francis is doing. You got to bring the intensity that Francis is bringing. Well, now Francis is not there. Now again, does Oregon have lots to replace him with potentially? Absolutely. His role had had fallen back, so Chandler Lawson and Folly Dante and C.J. Walker were all already in the mix. And if they all return, then that's that you know that that's that much more time for them to to split up amongst themselves. But you also have returning players who sat out this past year, who now are going to be part of the mix as well. And the Ducks are going to have two additional forwards to fit into the rotation, and we'll see what that looks like. And again, things could change further in the course of this offseason, but Francis Okoro goes on the portal. We'll see where he ends up. It's not a stunning development because of the way his production and minutes kind of ebbed and flowed, particularly as the season went on. Having said that, he still brought a lot to the table that the Ducks do have to replace. They can do it. They have the personnel to do it, even if that personnel changes a little bit more during the course of this offseason, which maybe it will and maybe it won't. But if it does, yeah, they have the possibility and potential and ability to replace it. And if it doesn't, then all the better. Then they've got tons of depth potentially on the inside. If there's no further attrition, no further changes, Oregon men's basketball is pretty well loaded on the interior at this point going into next season. And obviously, you know, replacing Peyton Pritchard and uh, Anthony Mathis at the guard position is going to be a, a bit of a challenge. But like every team, they'll go about it. They'll figure it out. But right now, on paper, Oregon has a lot of bigs to go about replacing Okoro and Shakur Justin, for that matter. Uh, they do have bigs to do that. We'll see how they go about doing it. 
But that brings us to a close on this week's edition of Ducks Confidential. Next week, we'll certainly be recapping and getting more into the NFL draft as far as where Justin Herbert ultimately ends up going and everybody else. He's going to be drawing the most attention on Thursday night in the first round. But where exactly the rest of Oregon's players go is very fluid, not only because it's heading into the draft and that's always that way. No, no, no. I mean, because the way the draft is unfurling this year and everything being done virtually and nobody having uh, top 30 visits to team facilities and teams working out players at the college facilities and all the rest and a lot of pro days being canceled and all those things, trying to predict this year's draft and forecast this year's draft is unlike anything we've ever seen before. So where do Shane Lemieux and Jake Hansen and Calvin Throckmorton and Troy Dye and Jawan Johnson, Jake Breeland, where do these guys get picked up? Your guess is as good as any. Because there are some draft prognostications and mock drafts out there that do the full seven rounds that are enormously varied. Not just in general, but even during the course of the first round you see some pretty big variation. But the further you go in, you've got grades on players. You've got some places, some analysts have this, you know, I'm not going to put a name to it because I don't want to uh, uh, be labeled as criticizing or uh, uh, being too rose-colored glasses with any one person. But you've got one site, one analyst, got a hey, player A is going to go in the second or third round. The next guy says they're going to be a fifth or sixth round pick. That's not terribly usual with players who are you know held in that high regard but like i say this draft is unlike any draft we've ever seen so it should make for some interesting and compelling television throughout the course of next weekend but it'll give us lots to talk about on next edition of the podcast too because right now trying to delve into it and tell you well you know this is where shane's supposed to go this is where jake's supposed to go this is where it would it's it's totally a fool's errand because Right now, you're barely comfortable projecting that Justin Herbert's going to go to either the Miami Dolphins or the San, or the uh, Los Angeles Chargers. That's where most people have them. But every day that goes by, there's another crazy draft trade scenario that gets thrown out there. Some have credit and credibility, and some have absolutely none. But with every passing day, something like that comes out, and this is for a player who's going to widely expected to go in the top six or ten of the draft. Now you want to talk about guys who could go in the second, third, or fourth rounds? They have no idea. So, <laughs> well, plenty to talk about next week right here on Ducks Confidential.